0: run, raise money, win. Everyone is focused on that short-term imperative, run, raise money, win. And a whole bunch of people around the politician are making money on that cycle. As you and I well know, that incentive structure to run and win, run and win, and run and win again has been around a long, long time. If you go back historically... The strength of our country and the strength of our democracy has always been grassroots movements, pressure movements that begin small and build over time. Just as children, we had to learn the discipline. I think we as adults have to retrain ourselves
1: to keep our eye on a longer-term ball. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. I'm so excited to have Carly Fiorina with me today. I had the privilege of working for Carly on her 2016 campaign, but prior to that campaign, Carly went from a secretary to a nine-person real estate business to leading Hewlett Packard through the worst technology recession in 25 years. Under her leadership, HP tripled innovation, quadrupled growth, and grew to become the 11th largest company in the United States. After leaving HP, Carly served as the chairman of Good360 and Opportunity International. She also founded the One Woman Initiative in partnership with Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice to engage and empower women in Pakistan, Egypt, India, and the Philippines through increased access to economic opportunity. She was also appointed as the chairman of the External Advisory Board of the CIA by President George W. Bush and CIA Director Michael Hayden, who's also been on the show. Today, Carly uses her 30 plus years of experience to advise corporations and nonprofits at our company, Carly Fiorina Enterprises. Carly, I am so excited to be here with you again today. Thank you for making the time.
0: Well, it's great to be back with you. Ron, thanks for having me.
1: So, the last time we talked, uh, this was the Lincoln Project podcast. And we were having a conversation geared toward thoughtful Republican voters uh, about voting across party lines, probably for the first time in their lives, many of them. And there was a lot of urgency to that moment because, in a very real way, democracy itself was on the ballot. Trump was ultimately defeated by the narrowest of margins in a few crucial battleground states. And then there was the fraughtness of the interregnum period, which culminated in a horrifying armed assault on the U.S. Capitol, followed by the first ever second impeachment of a sitting U.S. president. And now, as we speak, there are real people trying to subvert the machinery of elections in the future and further undermine the legitimacy of the American political system. And of course, All of this is happening uh, against the backdrop of a global pandemic. So if things weren't bad enough, it feels like we're in this very weird period of historical change that's getting more turbulent by the day. So we're in a much different place than we were today. And this podcast has grown into a project with a, a much wider aperture. Politicology is just as much focused on shoring up our defenses against those persistent, urgent threats to democracy, but we're also having much broader conversations, uh, exploring what other fields and disciplines and systems can teach us about what politics is in the first place and what our roles are in it. And uh, a couple of months ago, your chief of staff and I were catching up over drinks and uh, we started talking about incentive structures and in particular, short-term gains getting preferential treatment in various systems over long-term planning and goal-setting. And we see this in our political system, we see this in our financial system, in the corporate world, especially the tech world, uh, as we're having this white-hot debate right now about Facebook, and we see it culturally as well. And I want to dive into all these different domains with you, but before we go too far, why don't you help give our listeners a little bit of access to this conversation and Describe what we mean when we talk about short-term versus long-term incentives and thinking and goals.
0: Well, let me start with something that many of us can relate to, either as a parent or thinking back to our childhood. We learned pretty early about short-term versus long-term. We can recall our parent, or maybe we, as a parent, recall saying to our child, Study hard and get good grades now so that you have more options later. So no, you don't get to go outside and play right now. Stay in your room, study, because later, much later, you'll get a reward. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of teaching about the difference between short-term gratification yeah. and long-term payoff. Yeah. Or we say, don't do this now because it will harm you later. You know, don't do drugs now. Don't smoke now. Don't hang out with that kid now because later you're going to regret it. Circling all the way back to your introduction, in a way, I think many of us Republicans struggled with the choice of Trump because we were wrestling with short term, long term. In the short term, it was actually very difficult for a Republican not to vote for Trump. There was a ton of peer pressure. There was political pressure. There was, no, 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 of course you have to vote for Trump. He's a Republican and these Democrats believe in all these terrible things. But I think for many of us, we were weighing that short term pressure to do a certain thing against a longer term ill that we saw. What happens in the long term when character in the White House doesn't matter? What happens in the long term when lies are routinely told from the Oval Office? What happens in the long term when the guardrails of democracy are driven through routinely? That was a short-term, long-term debate in a lot of people's heads. Yeah. So we all know what it is, but I think sometimes we are not aware of how extreme the pressure towards the short term and away from the long term is. Yeah.
1: It's, I mean, it also, there's something physiological to that short-term preference as well. I mean, everyone is familiar or probably familiar with the, the famous marshmallow experiment from the, from the 70s, I think, at Stanford. Um, uh, where, you know, they would put a marshmallow in front of a child and two marshmallows uh, are given if they, if they wait to consume the marshmallows, they can have two. If they have it now, they get one, and and so we see this preference. Just it's it's built into our psychology, and our brains. Short-term, immediate gratification.
0: Yes, yeah, short-term, immediate gratification, which probably physiologically comes from short-term need for survival. That's right. Uh, I've got it now. A yeah. bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You know, yeah. we hear hear all those expressions, and, and I think one of the reasons that people can preference the long term Mm -hmm. over the short term is when they get positive reinforcement for having done so. So a parent tells a child, great job, you got a great grade. And so because you've given up all those play dates, I'm going to take you on a special pizza night with your friends or something. In other words, there's some positive reinforcement. And the difficulty, I think, for a lot of people now is there is very little positive reinforcement for thinking about the long-term. Yeah. In fact, there is a lot of negative criticism when there is a focus on the long-term. Yeah. Technology makes that infinitely worse, but it's real. And so for people to prejudice the long-term over the short-term, it takes a lot of strength of character. You can't always expect it at a boy or an girl. Yeah. Not in our culture. Yeah.
1: Okay. So there's, you know, as we're talking right now, I'm sure we're both thinking of, of every place that shows up in so many different domains. And, uh, this conversation is a little bit different. Um, because I want to, a lot of the, 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 the things we'll be talking about will be familiar to people, but I want to sort of give them access to, um, a, a perspective, a new mental model for thinking about how they look at systems, whether it's the political system, the financial system, uh, the tech ecosystem. Um, so, why don't we talk about um, the business world and uh, and how we see how we see this particular tension? Playing out, and we could start with um, you know we could start with the stock market. We could start start with um, corporate interests. Where do you think makes the most sense?
0: Well, I'll I'll start maybe because you mentioned the financial system. I'll start with the two thousand eight financial crisis because many of your listeners probably remember it in some way or perhaps have read about it. And at the time, the CEO of Citigroup, Chuck Prince, made a very famous comment. He was asked by a financial reporter, surely real estate prices have got to come down at some point, right? Everyone was sort of participating in this collective fantasy that real estate prices would rise forever, And when we look back on it, we think, well, how foolish. Of course, what goes up must come down eventually. And how could every, but nevertheless, everyone was making a lot of money. And so everyone was like, no, 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 real estate prices are gonna continue to rise. And Chuck Prince's famous comment at the time was, we're all going to keep playing till the music stops. And what he meant by that was, as long as people are making money, no one's gonna stop playing. And so an entire system suspended disbelief about what was obviously eventually going to happen. Real estate prices will fall. Yeah. And loans got spun into worse and worse and worse loans. And we know the answer. The stock market used to be a place where shareholders would make an investment And hold it. And even if they decided to sell an investment, they took their time to sell it. And so the average holding of stock now, this is decades ago, at least two, but the average holding of stock was years
1: Because you believed in the company.
0: Well, you believed in the company and you believed in management and people had a sense that progress takes time, Mm. that the sustainability of a franchise matters. What's happened now, if you looked at the average holding of stock today, it's days and weeks, not months, certainly not years. And if you look at the amount of money that's traded automatically through algorithms, yeah, people are holding investments for literally nanoseconds. That's so bizarre. So you have this entire system that generates capital for business that is oriented towards the short term now. Mm. That has big consequences. And lest it not get too abstract, remember that on top of all that, we're all running around with our smartphones where we can get anything we want instantaneously, anytime, anywhere, Amazon, information, connection, whatever it is. And we have these television shows, media outlets, whether it's CNBC or Yahoo Finance or Pick Your Financial Reporting And it's like a game. You know, there are people talking all the time. Oh my God, the stock's up 2%. And then we have GameStop and Robinhood. And right, those are all short-term incentives. Yeah,
1: with immediate payoffs.
0: With immediate payoff. And so- Whether
1: good or bad payoffs. Whether good or bad. Now,
0: I have sat in the CEO's chair. Mm -hmm. I was brought to Hewlett-Packard to transform a company that had been in trouble for a very long time. And so- Anything that's been in trouble for a long time is going to take some time to get out of trouble. We all know that. And yet all of the incentives, all of the pressure was for a quick fix. Oh my gosh, we have a brand new CEO, which should, I mean, come on, why isn't it different in a quarter (laughs) or two quarters or three quarters? And so I would spend an inordinate amount of time explaining why billions of dollars need to be needed to be invested not for the short term for the long term yeah or why we needed to acquire another company even if it meant our stock price would go down in the short term mm. because it would pave our way for the long term those kinds of trade-offs are more and more difficult to make
1: even harder than they were then
0: yes in our personal lives in our business lives and in our political lives When all the incentives are focused on the short term, thank goodness I had some shareholders who were focused on the long term. And we had enough of them who hung in with us long enough that we could get it done. And those people exist everywhere in every system, but they're usually not the loudest and they're not even always the most exciting.
1: Do you see other... uh, corporations in the same situation, uh, that you are facing, then you don't have to name names or, you know, well, brands, but do you see that, that, that sure. uh, problem facing what's, lots of corporation CEOs now? What's the, same the
0: argument about Facebook right now? Mm. What, what, what are Facebook employees coming forward and saying yeah. Facebook employees basically are saying you are making decisions that will harm us and society in the long run. In order to produce growth and profit in the short run. That's the basic argument. And they seem to have a lot of evidence to support it. And meantime, the stock continues to go up because investors are saying, yeah, okay, but in the short run, I'm making money. I like where the stock price is, so I'm staying in.
1: (sighs) So many questions. Um, you know, we're gonna have we're gonna have some uh, challenges uh, keeping our attention focused here because there's so many places I want to take this conversation. Um, what I why don't we stay why don't we stay on on business and and finance right now? I'm not even sure how this corrects, but what are some of the things? In the financial system, in the way corporations answer to their boards and their shareholders, that should give us some hope for how that system is going to evolve. Because, you know, there's an ongoing conversation I'm having with a number of of people I respect about how both democracy and capitalism have to co-evolve. Uh, and actually are co-evolving right now in order for us to uphold both systems, right? They're both going to have to change. And it feels like both of them are in uh, a very turbulent sort of state right now. And I just wonder how you think about how those systems change for the better over time. What, uh, what are the levers of power, um, whether they're individual or collective, what are the levers of power that could shape those incentives, uh, steer them into a different direction, to, to create longer time horizons for both investors uh, and, and boards and CEOs to give them more freedom to free up some of that pressure, uh, to focus on longer term goals. For example, Facebook. What kind of incentives would have to exist for Mark Zuckerberg to say, we're going to Forego the quarterly or annual profits report this year in order to focus on how we can improve society and maybe undo a lot of the damage that we've done. Is that a pipe dream? No, I, I'll steer away from the
0: specific of Mark Zuckerberg, and okay, the reason yeah. I'll steer away from it is because uh, Mark Zuckerberg is a is a very unique case, a dangerous case, in my opinion, where a single individual is in complete control Hmm. of a huge publicly traded company. It's a virtually unprecedented situation where he owns almost 60% of the stock. So let us set him aside for a moment. We can come back to that if you like. However, there are some hopeful signs on the horizon. There are a series of shareholder groups and investor types that have been putting real pressure on the corporate system, whether it's ESG investing, whether it's uh, investing for social good, whether it's shareholder activism, all of these movements have resulted in things like, for example, the business roundtable coming out a little over a year ago and saying, you know what, a corporation actually has a co-equal responsibility to not only its shareholders who are perhaps now overly short-term focused, but also its employees, its customers, and its communities. That balanced accountability of shareholders and customers and employees and communities is in and of itself a focus on the longer term.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, let me also quickly say, I'm not giving any CEO or any board a pass. Yeah. Okay, having sat in the chair, it is a CEO and a board's job to make the right trade-offs between short-term and long-term. And any CEO, in my humble opinion, that whines and says, I can't because the shareholders won't let me, isn't doing their job. Mm. If you're a leader, your job isn't to please everyone all the time. And specifically, it is a CEO on a board's job to balance that short-term, long-term. But the business roundtable making that statement was a big step forward. Because when a CEO is balancing those concerns, a CEO is saying, you know, I could do this and it might pop the stock in the short-term, but in the long-term it will really harm the community from which I draw customers and employees and support and capital. So I'm not going to make that move. Boards are under tremendous pressure, as they should be, from shareholders, from consumers, from employees, to say, you know, your job is not to worry about the short term. Actually, that's management's job. Mm. Your job, board, your job is to govern. And to govern, which could lead us to politics, of course, to govern is a long-term game. To govern is to care about long-term sustainable success, not a short-term flash in the pan. And so I think all those things actually are helpful pressure points. I don't know what specifically it's going to take in the case of Facebook, but I can tell you this, Facebook will continue to be pressured by revelations from their own employees. Yeah. Facebook will continue to be pressured by the legal system that is going to try and hold Mark Zuckerberg personally accountable. Facebook will continue to be pressured by shareholder groups that say to the board, where are you, what are you doing, and how come our shareholder proposals never go anywhere? All those pressures are going to continue, and it may not make a difference it definitely won't make a difference in the short term. Yeah. It may not even make a difference in the medium term, but it will absolutely make a difference in the long term. Yeah,
1: you mentioned the business roundtable. Just uh, for our listeners who might not know what that is or why it's so important. Okay, right? so, so the
0: business yeah. roundtable is probably the largest and most prestigious collection of major corporations in this country. Um, it, There are others, but the Business Roundtable is certainly a huge one. And so they gather the CEOs of the largest companies together at least twice a year. For that group to feel they had to make a public statement saying, you know, shareholders are important, but they're not the only important constituency here, is a sea change. Mm. Because prior to that statement, what a CEO would always say is, hey, my job is to maximize profits and satisfy the shareholder. My response as a CEO always was, no, your job is to create sustainable long-term value. But not every CEO agreed with that. The statement in and of itself was a sea change. And make no mistake, the statement occurred because those CEOs felt under pressure. They felt under pressure from their own employees. They felt under pressure from their consumers. And they responded to that pressure. All the pressure from society on companies to take a stand on the important societal issues that buffet us, whether it's Colin Kaepernick taking a knee or, uh, you know, where uh, certain games are played based on voting uh, suppression regulation, all those pressures matter to a CEO and matter in a boardroom. And what I think those pressure campaigns have demonstrated is that they can work even in the face of massive short-term incentives from the stock market.
1: Yeah. Okay. So before we move on to politics, I have one more question I want to dig into, which is we're talking about CEOs. Um, We're talking about the, the, our current configuration of capitalism. Uh, We're talking about democracy and one of the things, um, I hear a lot is that a lot of CEOs, um, there are many CEOs who don't often have to talk about capitalism or defend it or, 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 really think about it at a system level. They're focused on building businesses, right? Um, and now there's a lot of people who feel like, you know, you hear the sentiment, the system isn't working, right? Um on the On the democracy side, Pew runs this study, I think every year. They've been doing it for a long time, and they ask a question along the lines of, you know, uh, do you believe democracy is essential? and And over time, the number of people who answer yes has has dropped off significantly. Um, I think within the last couple of years, we had the first instance of a majority of a demographic actually saying no. And that was the Zoomers and the millennials. So the younger you get on this spectrum, the more likely you are to answer that question, no. Now, you could say um, what those people are actually hearing is not necessarily democracy. What they're hearing is, do you think this political system is working for you? And they look around and they say, obviously not. There's a lot of problems. And on the economic side, you have a loud and and growing um, sort of chorus uh, of people saying, capitalism is the problem. Capitalism is actually, we have to, we have to correct that. And they're talking, they're, the younger generations now are far more open to the idea of socialism or what they think socialism is. And so I want to bring this back to CEOs and the pressure that they're feeling from their employees and their responsibility, that the business Roundtable identified to shoring up the very, the the, the political freedoms and economic freedoms go hand in hand and how you see those two systems potentially evolving um if, if if at all and and whether or not a stronger focus on long-term incentives can actually help us pull back from correct the system a little bit so that it feels healthier for everybody yeah is that you follow my yeah.
0: yeah so first let's talk about capitalism yeah. um for a moment i completely understand why people would say capitalism isn't working very well. We have unprecedented income inequality. It is obscene what some CEOs make. It is obscene how the the wealth disparity that exists in this country, those are not examples of success, clearly. It's also true that in our economy today, the big keep getting bigger And it is harder and harder for the small to survive. I believe that is because actually we don't have a free market anymore. We have a market that has been infected by too many big businesses in bed with too much big government. Mm. I ran on that in 2016. In other words, what happens when you have a system where government has become, this is a nonpartisan comment, because it's happened under Republicans and Democrats alike. You have a system of government that has become so large and so complex that only the big and the wealthy know how to maneuver through it. So if I'm a really big company... Hewlett Packard, Facebook, Citigroup, you name it, Amazon, I can hire armies of lawyers and lobbyists and accountants to work that system. And if I'm a really wealthy individual, I can hire accountants and lawyers and maybe even lobbyists to work that system. But if I'm a mom and pop restaurant or I'm a startup or I'm just a normal family, I can't work the system. The system works me. And so I do think that part, you're exactly right. Having a freer market, an actually more capitalistic system, not less, means having a political system mm-hmm. that starts to hold both politicians and government. Accountable, which we don't do. Yeah. not to get off on this, Ron, yeah. but just yeah, yeah. here's another example of short term, long term, the opioid crisis. Yeah. There were lots of warning signals that this was out of control. Yeah. There were people dying of overdoses. There were increasing number of addicts. There were millions of prescriptions flowing into tiny little towns in West Virginia. It was obvious there was a problem. And yet, the company was doing really well in the stock market, and the regulators and government kind of looked the other way, and there wasn't really any incentive for a politician to take this on because the people who were dying were pretty powerless, honestly. And so nothing really got done until the whole thing blew up. And now it turns out when we look at it, the legal system took them on, The legal system remains um, a tool for reform. When it all finally blew up in the legal system, um, the company has been held accountable, kind of. Kind of. A family lost billions of dollars. Yeah. Has government ever been held accountable? No. Has no one, has anyone in government ever stood up and taken accountability? from president obama all the way down to president bush before him or president trump after him all the yeah. way down to the regulators yeah. who are supposed to be in charge no one's ever accountable mm-hmm. and so i do think that in order for this to get better we actually have to start demanding accountability of everyone yeah politicians regulators business people and the only people to demand accountability actually is us. It's us, and so these movements of pressure, while they don't pay off in the short run, and that's what's so frustrating yeah. to people. Wait yeah. a second, I can get anything I want in two seconds. <laughs> why can't I demand. get how? <laughs> you know? Why can't I get this to fix? Yeah. Why can't I get this fixed yeah. in a month? Yeah. It's not the way it works. Yeah. This is a long term problem, which yeah. will take a long term solution. But I believe it starts. Always, with demanding transparency, what's actually going on here, and then demanding accountability.
1: Yeah.
0: And only we can do that. Only
1: we can do that. Yeah. That was uh, a better segue to the political part of the discussion than we could have even designed. So (laughs) well done. (laughs) Let's talk about short-term and long-term in our political system. You touched on the opioid crisis. Without leading the witness at all. When you think of short-term incentive structures within our political system right now, what are the first things that you think about?
0: Well, actually, George Washington told us, literally George Washington, in his farewell address to the nation way back in 1789, I think I have the year right, he said, the trouble with political parties is they will come to care only about winning. Well, that is the problem right there, isn't it? Politicians, political parties, and everyone who enables them, the business around politics is completely focused on, I got to run, raise money, and win. I got to run, raise money, and win. I got to run, raise money, and win. The fundraising incentives are quarterly. Elections come every two years. And so everyone is focused on that short-term imperative Run, raise money, win. And a whole bunch of people around the politician are making money on that cycle. As you and I well know, run, raise money, and win. Run, raise money, and win. Now... Politicians will say to their voters, oh, I'm I'm running and I'm winning and I want your vote so that I can do these things over the long haul. You know, I want to change these policy directions. But the problem is when all your focus is on running and winning, you never get to that stuff. And it's why voters get so frustrated because it's like, wait a second we've been voting and you've been making promises for a really long time. And yet the fundamentals that we've been talking about haven't really changed much deficits, immigration, uh, wealth disparity. I mean, all these things we keep climate change. We've been talking about these things for a long time. Somehow we never get to it. And here you have this back to your introduction. You have this massively traumatic election in the fall of 2020 you finally get it done mm-hmm. only to realize, no, actually, it's never done because one group of people says it wasn't fair. And the other group of people says, oh, my gosh, we better get something done in a hurry because next year we got to worry about the next election. <laughs> and it was really, really close in 2020. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, yeah, I want to get an infrastructure bill passed. But really what I want to do yeah. is convince everyone that they need to reelect me next time. Yeah. That's a long that's been around for a long time. Yeah. That incentive structure to run and win, run and win, and run and win again has been around a long, long time. And again, the strength in democracy, if you go back historically, the strength of our country and the strength of our democracy has always been grassroots movements, Mm -hmm. pressure movements that begins small and build over time. Pick any major change you want in this country from the Emancipation Proclamation to the civil rights movement to gay marriage. You pick anything you want to climate change today. People finally get done what needs to get done, not because the politicians are thinking long-term, they're not. It's because people put pressure on the system. Consistent, inexorable, long-term pressure that starts at the grassroots level and builds, but it takes time.
1: That's you, dear listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed it is. Politicians running and winning and the difficulty of governing. I want to maybe ask you about the media incentives when it comes to governing now. And it seems to me, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Um, it's very difficult to set long-term goals and execute against them. And when you're in the public spotlight, it's even harder, right? Because right. you have scrutiny from com- coming from everywhere. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't mean to sound nostalgic about this at all. I just mean to sort of, uh, put an anchor back in a time when there wasn't a 24 hour news cycle and politicians weren't constantly under the microscope and deals were maybe easier to get done because they, um, long-term visions could be worked out, you know, uh, and, and I wonder obviously there's some great things that are, that are uh, a product of, uh, more transparency, more media accessibility, but it does sometimes feel like when you're watching politicians, you're just, now it's a reality, it's a permanent reality show. Um, and a lot of, a lot of them enjoy participating in the reality show way more than they want to govern and find long-term solutions to the problems that are plaguing us. Um, so I wonder what you think about that, um, whether it's a good thing, it's a bad thing, both. And how, consumers of that information uh should maybe temper their um their knee-jerk reactions to things and or how how can they maybe support politicians who don't participate in that kind of in the in the in the circus so let
0: me say um you know I'm a student of American history I chair the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation so I tend always have tended to think about these things in historical context. It is accurate to say The discord and disagreement are not new Mm. in this country. Go figure. They're not. (laughs) I mean, if you go back and you look at what was being said in the media of the time around the revolution, just as an example, the vitriol was intense, personal. We've disagreed about a lot of things Mm -hmm. ever since we were founded. The difference now is it is so immediate because of the device we all carry around in our hands. And to your point, it is magnified by every media outlet because media is a business. And as a business, they want revenue and eyeballs and advertising dollars. And they too are motivated towards the short term. Mm -hmm. So all of this vitriol, all of this disagreement, all of this discord and divisiveness get magnified over and over and over and over. Here's the dirty little secret. We maybe all know it intuitively, but it's worth saying out loud. When politicians run in order to win, They promise us that they will solve problems. But what they do to get there is sow division. Mm -hmm. They, on all sides, say the other side's the enemy, the other side's wrong, the other side is stupid, I'm going to do this, they're so terrible. In other words, um, most campaigns are run on a message of division. Mm -hmm. And then the time is short to actually get a positive vision. So here's what I would encourage listeners to do. And again, this is very difficult in our age. Just as children, we had to learn the discipline of short-term denial for longer-term gratification. (laughs) Just as parents, we try and teach our children, don't give in to the temptation in the short term, because there's something more important waiting for you in the long term. I think we as adults have to retrain ourselves to keep our eye on a longer term ball. Mm. What is really at stake? What principles really matter? What are things that strengthen our union and things that Weaken our union? Who are voices that stand up for the things that matter in this country? And who are voices that are simply standing up for themselves? Mm. I think we have to learn that discipline again. And I think we have to learn how to be discerning. It isn't just who tells you what you want to hear, discernment means. You have to look at the pattern of someone's life, not just what they've said in the last five days. Discernment means you have to watch somebody over time. Discernment means that sometimes you have to be willing to say, you know, I don't agree with that person on every little thing, but I agree with them on the big things. And so I'm going to go with them on the big things. I know that sounds so basic, but I don't actually think there's any other way to get this back going in the right direction.
1: Yeah, it's 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 basic, but it's foundational. Um, Personally, um, you know, after exiting the Republican Party uh, and a career in Republican politics, yeah. The, the 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 campaigning, the electioneering, the packs. Yeah. Not an it, easy choice for you. Not an easy choice for me. I did that my entire life. Um uh but after I left behind, it's a whole lot easier to deconstruct than it is to construct something. To it's a whole and it's a whole lot easier to, as difficult as that decision was, and I know there's so many people who've done the same thing, who've had to have that uh that honest conversation with themselves. Um after that, uh, and I, I think, you know, we talked about this in our conversation about a year ago, um, right before the election, character is one way I have found to evaluate candidates, politicians, far more important to me now than, than their policy prescriptions, yeah. than whatever bill they're trying to get passed, because you can make, they may
0: never ar- get it past. They may never <laughs> get it
1: past actually. And you can make an argument to me about where the variable tax rate should be, uh, how much we should spend on this program or that program. And all of that should be on the table. But if I can't believe that you think, uh, that this, that, that we have to have a, a shared fact base and a democratic system that is, uh, functioning, that has integrity. If, 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 if character is missing, then that's bigger than all of it, right? We have to start from there. So, um, and I think to borrow your phrase, uh, character is revealed over time and under pressure. That's right. And I wonder if that's, um, if you could elaborate on that a little bit in terms of, you know, a lot of voters now are thinking, if I'm going to be part of the solution here, then how do I need to change my behavior? How do I need to view politics in a new way? Let's go back to first principles and what what role do I have in, in changing this? Could that be one way yes. to sort of change your own participation in the process?
0: Yes. I actually think there are two ways that voters, your listeners, can make a real positive impact here. Number one is exactly as you suggest. Why is character so important and why do principles as opposed to policies matter so much? Because let us face it, whether you're a CEO or a congressman, the decisions that get made that impact most people get made behind closed doors. Yes, the media reports on them, but the big decisions don't get made out in public. So therefore, what's the one thing we have to be able to count on when I don't know what you're doing? Can I Mm -hmm. count on the fact that you're a person of character with some principles that I support? That's all we have to count on. Because under pressure, they may abandon their policies to get a deal done. I mean, that's politics, right? That's the sausage making. So character, values, principles, Those things are the things that we have to be able to count on. And therefore, I believe those are the things we have to look for most. I'm fond of saying values are what guide your behavior when no one is looking and you don't think anyone will ever find out. That's how you know who somebody is. When no one's looking they don't think anyone's going to find out, and the only way you discern values and character and principles is to look at how someone is living their life and has lived their life. Is this does this look like a person of character and principle and value, or not? Because guess what, if they don't look like a person of character and principle and values, they're probably not. That's one thing that voters can do: not get. And not, by the way, get distracted by all the stuff that flows onto their device and into their mailbox and uh, that has nothing to do with character and principle and values. I think the second thing that individuals can do is to behave the way we want our politicians to behave. Don't put it all on someone else. In other words, I hear people say all the time, wow, I wish our politicians would be more civil.
1: Hmm. I do too. Yeah, have you been on Facebook though? (laughs)
0: Try being more civil yourself. I make it a point, I honestly make it a point to spend time with people who think they disagree with me on virtually everything. And during that time, I try to find something we agree on. And here's the thing that gives me hope. There are loads of things we agree on. I have said recently in public remarks, uh, this was specifically around the need for uh, Voting Rights Act uh, because of what's going on at the state level based on the premise that an election was stolen, which it wasn't. I have said that I do think that if we get it out of the discord and the division of politics that is amplified by platforms like Facebook, most Americans disagree on a lot of things, but they agree on big things. They agree on big things. And I think we have to come back to, can the fundamentals, to use your term, can we talk more about the big things we agree on. Can we focus more on the things we're taught as a child? Character matters. Yeah. Values matter. Principles matter. We know in our gut that that's true, but we don't often act on that belief. We need to act on it more often.
1: Yeah. You know, if something just like really hits. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: And give yourself an attaboy (laughs) because you've lived that. You've lived that and it's not easy and you don't always get stroked or, or an attaboy or an attagirl for doing the right thing. In fact, so often people get exactly the opposite. You do the right thing and you get hit over the head. Yeah. And so that's the other thing I would just say is when you see someone doing the right thing, don't be silent. Yeah, Lift them up. I had to learn the hard way as a CEO. It's always the critics who are the loudest. It's always the voices of vitriol that are the loudest. Those of us who hopefully focus on the fundamentals and make the right choices or at least try to are usually quieter. We need to not be so quiet. Yeah. We need to stand up and... Noisier.
1: Agree. Here, here. Should we talk about culture? Absolutely, because we have been talking about culture. We have actually, been talking about culture because,
0: because our culture actually our culture lifts up division and discord right yeah. now, yeah. and it lifts up division and discord because it drives a bunch of businesses it does. from politics to Facebook.
1: It drives all kinds of short term gains for different actors. That's right. Yeah. Media, yeah.
0: politicians.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and there's no when when you really think about the um the breadth of uh of that, you know, I don't want I don't know if I want to call it a, an infection, but the but but just how dominant short-term preference is across so many domains from from media to politics to government to it it does seem overwhelming and it seems uh like you're not going to wave a magic wand and you know uh, regulate the short-term interest out of a business or an industry, no. and you're not going to. It's just not going to happen that way. And to your point about major systemic change always being the result of a of a of a small and growing and ultimately uh, uh, overwhelming grassroots movement, this feels like one that we need desperately right now.
0: Yes, and so I first I want to encourage. You and your listeners to never feel powerless. Mm. I think part of what's going on now is people feel powerless. They see all these huge interests and these huge trends, and oh my god, the huge business and huge government and huge trend stories your sure. There's nothing I can do. I am powerless. Either that or they get very focused on the abstract, the biggest possible, the highest level of problem. Yeah. How are we going to fix the political system? (laughs) It's really abstract. That's really far away.
1: What do you even mean by that? And so
0: what I would encourage people to do is think about what can you do in your own sphere in your own life to make a positive difference because it's the only thing that's ever actually changed anything. The American revolution, I mentioned colonial Williamsburg, the American revolution was the result of 200 years of discussion and discourse and thinking. It didn't just happen in two years. The ideas that were put down on paper by those people, although they applied to very few and although the revolutionary period was horrifically terrible in so many ways for so many people in the midst of heroism in writing those words down. And yet, If we think about all of that, the horrific worst to the heroic best, it's also true that the words that got written down on that piece of paper have driven every positive movement for change in this country ever since. There are power. There is power in those words and in those ideas and ideals. And individuals, not big institutions, individuals, have attached themselves to those words and moved. Mm -hmm. So here we have, you know, what can I do just as an example, as chair of Colonial Williamsburg, is make sure that as we approach our 2026 celebration, commemoration of our 250th founding of the nation, that we tell the whole story of our history the horrific worst, as well as the heroic best. That we tell the story of every kind of person, because guess what? Every kind of person who exists in America today existed in America back then.
1: Yeah, you were mentioning over lunch a couple of examples. Yeah,
0: so, uh, of course, we're telling the story of slavery in a much more complete way, but we don't tell it in an abstract way. We tell it in a personal way. Um, we are excavating the very first African-American church in all of the country, and we're telling the story of the African pastor of that church. Mm. The person, the individual, the man, who was he? What did he do? And the people in his congregation. We're telling the story now of a lesbian couple who's very famous During that time, yes, we had an LGBTQ plus community in America back then, just as we do now, because human nature hasn't changed. And so what I've learned is if we, history can be very divisive to people because they cherry pick it. But if we tell our whole story as the story of people who are sometimes heroic and sometimes horrific, but who somehow came together over a set of ideas and principles and values and lifted up a certain kind of American character, it actually turns out to unify people. Mm. I say all that to say every single listener out there has a sphere of influence. They have a set of people they interact with, they have a workplace they go to, they have a family that they are a member of. And all those spheres of influence are a place where they can exert power and influence by their example of finding areas of agreement instead of disagreement by their example of focusing on the fundamentals of character and values and principle by their example of saying, yeah, this feels great in the short term, but what about the long term by their example of where they put their energy and the problems they focus their resources against. None of us are powerless. And this country, the existence of this country, Hmm. the progress of this country is testament to the power of individuals animated and brought together by a set of ideas and
1: principles. I love our conversations, <laughs> and, and there are just some moments where I'm not even I'm not even sure how to how to follow that with a question. It's it's very it's a very elegant um, piece of advice. For, for a listener, very accessible. Um, well, I'm not
0: sure about elegant, thank you, but yeah. I but I hope it's um, of course accessible. I, I hope it's encouraging yeah. because the thing that I find most concerning actually about our current time is not The nature of the problems we face. Okay. We have always faced very difficult problems. We always have Mm -hmm. existential problems. And we've always figured out a way to make progress and get better. Not perfect, but better. So, yeah, we face big problems, huge problems. But I believe that we have the potential and the ingenuity to tackle those problems. So what concerns me most are not the problems. What concerns me most is this widespread feeling of powerlessness. I am powerful as a consumer with my little device, but I'm not powerful as an actor, Mm. as a citizen, as a problem solver. That concerns me because in my experience, people are far more powerful than they realize. They have more influence than they realize, but we lose it all if we assume that we are powerless. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, when you think about what technology is doing to our lives, it does feel like, um, flimsier interactions in a digital space are taking the place of, uh, more meaningful interactions in the real analog world. Um, and, you know, I suppose the answer to that is spend less time online, but it does, it does, um, does become more difficult. The more technology sort of takes over day to day life. But, um, uh, I just want to talk about climate change as one, one other, one other example, because we've talked about culture. Um, and I suppose this is sort of both business and, and, and culture, but I wonder how you see the, the tension between capital markets and, uh, businesses and where the best levers might be, uh, because this is a topic that comes up a lot and we haven't, um, we haven't dealt with it directly in a while uh, on, on the show, but a lot of our listeners are very concerned about climate yes, change. And,
0: as as we all should and, be.
1: As we all should be. And, and I do think it's interesting, uh, you know, going back to the political, that there are a lot fewer Republican politicians, if any, now who are vocally denying the existence of climate change. They were once upon a time. There was an attack against the science, but now it's kind of undeniable. We have all these erratic weather patterns and – um so there's just not a lot of talk but there's also not a lot of action on on that side and and um it comes up a lot in the very short list of existential problems that it yes. feels like we're facing yes. so how um this is one of those areas that does leave us feeling kind of powerless as consumers because um you know because the things that you can do at an individual level feel kind of meaningless um even though they you know they may not be some things are have a bigger impact than others but but by and large even recycling you know now in my building for example we you know we uh we have a recycling Uh, and we have a trash bin, but then we just found out that actually it all goes at the same place because the District of Columbia doesn't bother to separate it anymore because it costs more in energy than it does to actually uh, reap the benefits of recycling. So there's a lot to be discouraged about. And I wonder how you, um, just what your thoughts are there and and, 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 um, how we might move forward constructively.
0: So I do think that climate change, because it is a... um, Big, long-term, complex problem requires every aspect of society to be part of the solution. I mean, this is the classic case where government and business and culture and society all have to be rowing in the re- in the same direction, and clearly, we haven't been there. Um, Democrats are wrong when they assume that government is always the answer to everything and everyone else is wrong. And the reason they are not getting traction on their climate change proposals, in my opinion, is because it casts business as the enemy. Mm. Republicans are wrong when they say government is never the solution because government is absolutely required to make progress on a whole set of problems. This is a place where the short-term, long-term trade-offs are not easy or obvious. Um, It is true that the majority of power comes from um, fossil fuel-based energy sources today and will continue to do so for the next... 20 years, probably. Mm. Mm. That's just a fact. You can't wish that away. So saying we're rushing off to wind and solar, which also has downsides in the next five years is not realistic. On the other hand, we have to start making progress and this will not get solved without real innovation. And it is innovation that gives me hope Mm. because you are seeing some real innovations. You mentioned recycling. Well, let's just go back in time. It used to be that recycling was the individual movement of a few nutcases
1: in San Francisco. It was like composting. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) I mean, it was this little tiny movement. And now it's everywhere. Okay, it's not perfect. But on the other hand, recycling has become part of the background. Of course you recycle. All that recycling ends up in those huge swirling trash piles somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. And yet there's innovation now being focused on how do we clean the ocean? There's real innovation going on there. So to me, the answer is we must have a set of sensible regulations and government interaction that moves the incentives towards the long term. Mm -hmm. Government has to play a role. Yeah. But we also need a regulatory structure that is open enough that innovation is encouraged and risk taking is rewarded. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why all these funds in the capital markets that are focused on ESG and uh, you know environmentally progressive uh, solutions are so encouraging because real money is going towards this mm. now. Real funds are focused on innovation in the climate change space. And one last point on this. I think things are really going to start to change when insurance companies focused on their relatively short-term bottom line are going to say, you know what? We can no longer insure certain levels of risk that have become astronomical in an era of
1: climate change. For example, buildings in Miami.
0: (laughs) For example, well, for example, um, homes in forest fire prone California Mm. or homes in flood zones, there will be near term consequence for that. That will be painful. Yeah. So let's get real about that. But when we stop rewarding either company behavior or individual behavior that contributes to climate change, we're going to start to make faster progress. And as climate, the consequences of climate change become more and more obvious and more and more costly, I think you're going to see those incentive structures shift. And that's a good thing.
1: There's another example that gives me some hope. Uh, and I don't remember the name of the company, but at least half of I think it's like half of the methane that's produced comes from cows, and there's some really cool innovation around yeah. around synthetic meat, lab grown meat that doesn't actually involve any animals or cow farts <laughs> and and they're and they're looking at replacing the or substituting the meat supply with synthetic meat that people can't taste the difference and actually sort of bypassing the need for cattle and the first place, which seems not just creative, but also you're not asking everybody to become a vegan <laughs> at the same time. Yes. And yeah.
0: focus on the re it's a classic example of the difficulty of making the short-term long-term trade-off. And we ought to be real about that. Yeah. Everything's not as clean as it is in cyberspace. You know, they're actually, it's not a video game. Okay. They're real short-term long-term trade-offs that have real consequences. You put a whole bunch of people out of business and out of work that have farmed meat for generations that has real consequence is the, is our energy best focused on cows emitting methane or is our energy better focused on something bigger? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm just saying, I think part of what we have to do, i said we had to relearn discipline and relearn some fundamentals. I do think sometimes we have to relearn patience. Mm. These are not quick fixes. They are not silver bullets. There are no answers that are going to be pain-free. Every one of these trade-offs has consequences mm. and downsides and difficulties associated with them. And every single one of these solutions takes time to implement. And so we got to be patient and we got to get real, but continuing to put pressure on all the aspects in our spheres of influence and continuing to hold people accountable for the decisions they make. These are things that can make a difference over time.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, Before we wrap up, is there any domain we haven't touched on or explored adequately where this, this tension is very real and uh, and consequential that you want to talk about?
0: Well, (laughs) short term, long term is a personal choice Mm. as well as an analytical tool. And so I guess I would just um, encourage people to think about the personal choices they would make and whether they're majoring on the short term or balancing that with the long term. Mm. And once again, it's harder to do that these days because there are so many temptations in the short term that are so tempting. (laughs) And so it's really hard to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that in the short term. I'm not going to... Get on Twitter and just eviscerate somebody <laughs> because I'm pissed off at what they said to me. I'm not going to do that because, yeah. in the long term, I am contributing yeah. to a lack of civility in our discourse. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I'm not going to all this terrible thing in the short term because it has real consequences in the long term. There are a million examples of this. And so to me, it brings home, once again, it's a whole lot easier to sit in an armchair and throw rocks at somebody that you think isn't making the right short-term, long-term trade-off. But as we're reminded sometimes, um, the hardest change of all is the one we ourselves have to make. And so maybe let's start at home, each of us, And see if we can get better grounded in that short-term, long-term yeah. trade-off.
1: Be the change you want to see. Yeah, in the world. I mean, there are ancient examples of this too. I mean. It, exactly. It, yeah.
0: And there's real fundamental truth yeah. in that. Yeah. It's easier to throw rocks at someone else than it yeah. is to do it
1: yourself. Yeah. Uh, let he who would change the world first change himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Carly Fiorina. This is always a pleasure. I love our conversations. Um, before I let you go, um, where can people find you on the internet, follow your work, which I love to do. And I'm so excited to see what you do with colonial Williamsburg. I'm actually looking forward to visiting. And for people who don't know, um, we're talking about Colonial Williamsburg and telling, telling stories. And this is an interactive experience, folks. Uh, do you want to tell people a little bit about that? Well, yes. Because it's, it's it, not just like reading something on a plaque and for people, a lot of, a lot of people in America have never been and, and don't understand. We know it's it is.
0: interesting. There was, a, thank you for yeah. that, for that <laughs> plug, <laughs> that shameless plug. There was a recent article in the Washington post which described Colonial Williamsburg as doing some of the most interesting and avant garde theater in the nation. Mm. Now, who, would have, thought who that? would have thought that? Who would have thought that? Because people hear Colonial Williamsburg and they think, oh gosh, it's a bunch of fife and drum people. And, you know, it's nostalgia, not history.
1: Right.
0: And a certain kind of nostalgia. Um, and of course, we have to wrestle with all of that. But we tell real stories about real people that have been meticulously researched by real historians, and we place them in their real buildings, in their real clothes, with their real objects, in their real place. So in an era where virtually everything is fake and false and fleeting, and that is the era we live in today, this is a place where it's real. And rather than being abstract, to your point, yes, you can go look at a building and marvel at how the excavators of that building, the first African-American church in the in the United States, for example, how the excavators of that building, how the archaeologists in that building know that these are grave sites that this is the real foundation of the first church. You can do that, and it's fascinating. Mm. And you also can watch gifted interpreters tell the story of an enslaved man or woman and what their life was like and what their choices were like and how they tried to teach their children. And then you can also go listen to Thomas Paine or Thomas Jefferson talk about the great ideas that they're writing down on paper. And you can contemplate the contradiction between those great ideals and some of the terrible stories that we have to tell about the beginning of our nation. But I promise that if people will come and visit, you will be educated, yes, but also uplifted and refreshed, Mm. Because if we can be here, having started there, we can solve any problem and go anywhere we choose as a nation. That I truly believe.
1: Thank you for being here today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.